I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. Today's podcast is a special show. It's about our ontogeny as FACO surgeons, and it begins with a trip. From my office in Midtown Manhattan, one block from the Empire State Building, we'll go 31 blocks north and 38 years back. The time of my initial training surgery, as I was trained, was through a very large incision, the intercapsular procedure, through a 9 or 10 millimeter incision, with no microscope, but the use of loops. My guest today is Jack Doddick. I completed my training in the year 1967, and that was exactly the same year that Kelman did his first phaco emulsification procedure on the human eye at the Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital, where I trained in ophthalmology. So the case was scheduled on a Tuesday morning in OR4 at the Manhattan Eye, Ear, and uh, I was there. I was a resident who uh, had just finished, uh, or just completing, in the process of completing my third year. Kelman had arrived very early in the morning with his assistant, Joe Lizabrand, and uh, his other assistant, Cheryl. He expected our chief of ophthalmology not to be there, and he almost had a heart attack. Because about one hour before the procedure was to begin, the chief showed up to make rounds and poked his nose into the operating room. So the case was delayed uh, until the then chief had left the OR and uh, the procedure began. It was early in the morning. And Kelman, who had been doing a lot of his work on iBank eyes prior to uh, his first human case, had arranged to do his first uh, phaco emulsification procedure on a uh, blind eye in a patient who had volunteered to have the procedure done. He purposely arranged to have the procedure done on a day when the chief of ophthalmology was not scheduled to be present in the hospital. The reason being was quite simple. The chief of ophthalmology and most of the board of surgeon directors at the Manhattan Ironier Hospital totally opposed what he was trying to do. It took four hours and one minute, 60 minutes of ultrasound time to complete the first procedure. That's 60 minutes, six zero minutes? Six zero minutes, or 360 seconds of ultrasound time to complete the first procedure. Now, the first procedure was not a success, <clears throat> quite simply because uh, the cornea, as you can imagine, turned absolutely white. But even before it had a chance to clear, the patient developed a fulminating bacterial endophthalmitis and ultimately lost the eye within three weeks after surgery. The second procedure 
was a success. A success in that, uh, although the cornea took a long time to clear, the patient ended up with useful vision. There was great resistance to the microincision or the phacoemulsification procedure that Kelman did, uh, quite simply because although most people were fascinated with the possibilities, they rationalized that why struggle through phacoemulsification learning curve when in, in the end, even though you could remove a cataract through a 3.2 millimeter incision, one still had to open the wound to at least six or seven millimeters or more to insert a six millimeter optic lens. Because you remember at that time, there were no lenses or foldable lenses that could be inserted through a foreshortened wound. The early wounds for phacoemulsification were made with a razor blade. They were in the neighborhood of three to four millimeters. They uh, were made especially larger than the phaco needle and the surrounding coaxial silicone tube, primarily because he intended for the wound to leak. With the wound leaking, that added a extra barrier of safety, preventing heating of the phaco needle and subsequent corneal or corneoscleral burn people began to realize that even though the wound had to be enlarged after phacoemulsification, the amount of intraoperative control and security that one could get with removing a cataract through a small wound was enormous. We used to hold our breath during intracapsular procedure. We used to hold our breath that the capsule wouldn't rupture, that vitreous wouldn't come forth, or more horribly so that we wouldn't be faced with a um, suprachoroidal hemorrhage, which we would be powerless to prevent or stave off once it occurred with the wound opened for eight or nine millimeters. In the late 60s or early 70s, there began to be more interest in phacoemulsification. But I would emphasize interest, but not many takers. At that time, Kelman began giving uh, some courses in ultrasound phacoemulsification. He actually had a device that he had fashioned. One would have to master before being allowed to proceed with ultrasound phacoemulsification. And it was a very interesting uh, wire contraption in which a, a surgeon had to uh, manipulate a needle through two little eyelets without touching the eyelets. So in the early 70s, uh, there were few people performing this procedure, very few. Even five years after phacoemulsification was done on the first eye, there were very few uh, such procedures done in the country. And of course, in the mid-70s, we had the introduction of the foldable lens. Well, that changed everything. Not only was there the benefit of intraoperative control, there was the ultimate benefit of a foreshortened incision, which would lead to quicker recovery, less postoperative astigmatism, and from that point on, uh, phacoemulsification, its acceptance, went up in a straight line. One of the common flaws in our procedure then was uh, a capsulotomy that was not ideal. 
As you remember, Kelman uh, basically had advocated removal or tearing the capsule in a Christmas tree fashion, and we ultimately evolved to what we then knew as the uh, beer can capsulotomy, in which multiple punctures were made in the anterior capsule. They were nothing but a series of potential radial tears that could extend beyond the zonules to the posterior capsule and disrupt the posterior capsule, and many of them did. In about the mid 80s, early 90s, two surgeons in different parts of the world, Howard Gimbel in Calgary and Thomas Neuhan in Munich, came upon a controlled capsular tear that we now know as capsulorexis. I myself came upon a very interesting technique to disassemble the nucleus, call, which I called nuclear pre-slice. I actually learned this technique, it wasn't my invention, on a Bavarian golf course from Joachim Kamann from Dortmund, Germany, who had devised, cleverly devised, two hooks, which were nothing more than elongated Sinsky hooks that were two millimeters from the bend with a small ball at the end of the tip. Now, these two hooks were inserted 180 degrees apart and engaged the uh, equator of the lens 180 degrees apart and then brought together pre-slicing the nucleus and then each half was then bisected with a similar technique. I became very adept and very comfortable with this technique as did Joachim Kamen. I did teach it over the years to my fellows but it didn't gain real acceptance because there were always concerns of inadvertent placing of these hooks into the bag, disinserting the capsular bag. Really, there were unfounded fears, but a lot of people rejected this because it made them very uncomfortable. It is a technique, nuclear pre-slice, that I still use today with great efficiency in disassembling the nucleus. Dr. Dodick's current focus has centered on removing cataracts with a laser. I asked him how he became interested in the subject. I think uh, in order to answer that question, Josh, I have to take you back in time to the year 1982. Now, at that time, many of the cataracts were now being removed with an extracapsular technique, either with a planned extracapsular technique in the large incision or a Kelman-Faco ultrasound procedure, both of which left the posterior capsule intact. We know what happened. With time, many of these capsules pacified and subsequently needed to be opened with a needle capsulotomy after the fact or sometimes with a needle capsulotomy right at the original procedure to remove the cataract. At about that time, two European ophthalmologists, Daniel Aaron-Ross in Paris and Professor Franz Funkhauser in Bern, Switzerland, conceived almost simultaneously the use of a YAG laser to open the posterior capsule in a non-invasive fashion. There were two approaches at that time. One was known as a Modlock laser and one was known as a Q-switched laser. I became very interested in this whole concept. Because of my interest in YAG laser in the early 80s, uh, I came upon a physicist. His name was Reinhard Tietzel, the original founder of Meditech Laser. He and I became close friends, and uh, I became fascinated with the fact that if the posterior capsule could be opened with a YAG laser, 
why couldn't we then use some laser energy to replace ultrasound and remove the entire cataract? My original concept was to mount a small YAG laser on an operating microscope and to use it to pierce the anterior capsule, subsequently to emulsify or soften the nuclear material with the YAG laser and remove it with a bimanual cleanup, much like we use today for cortical cleanup. Was this tried ever? No. The reason that we didn't succeed with that is that Danielle had already tried to open the anterior capsule antecedent to cataract removal, and it just was not a very efficient way of uh, opening the anterior capsule, and in her case led to some problems when it was done prior to the patient being brought to the operating room. Therefore, we quickly learned that capsules that were heavily laden with cortex were very difficult to open because the minute you got dispersion of cataractous material, even as small as Brownian movement, it became very inefficient. Anyway, that whole early concept of removing cataracts by direct ablation of YAG laser uh, was quickly abandoned. By the time we approached the late 80s, I was not only fascinated by... Uh, using a laser to remove a cataract, but I became even more fascinated by the prospect of decreasing the wound size that was necessary to remove a cataract and replace it with an intraocular lens. Now granted, three millimeters was serving our purpose as well, but I began to conceive of even a more foreshortened wound. 1.5, possibly 1 millimeter, in which we could ultimately in the future invade the capsular bag, leaving it intact, removing the cataract, and I had a vision of refilling the capsular bag with some optically qualified compound, such as collagen, silicone, or a similar qualified compound that would uh, restore our original lens structure and possibly stave off the effects of presbyopia by keeping us with a pliable lens well into our eighth or ninth decade of life. In the um, early 70s, Steve Shearing of Las Vegas had proved that you could remove a cataract, albeit a soft cataract, through a foreshortened incision of one millimeter in which he removed the silicone sleeve, left the needle bare through one incision of about 1.5 millimeters and infusion in a similar paracentesis incision of about 1.5 millimeters because there was concern of corneal or corneoscleral burn. The procedure never seemed to advance. The use of laser energy might even have some advantages over ultrasound in that we could produce a disruptive energy without creating heat. Laser energy, or YAG laser energy, with the creation of a shock wave, produces a temperature in the neighborhood of 10,000 degrees Kelvin, but only over a nanosecond. And in fluid, that translates to virtually no temperature elevation at all. So ultimately, we could have a probe that could remove a cataract with disruptive force with no heat. So I saw that as a benefit immediately. When I was teaching laser courses throughout the country, and oftentimes 
trying to illustrate to medical students that rotated through our service at the Manhattan Ironier, I tried to show them what optical breakdown and plasma formation was by firing off a YAG laser for capsulotomy into air, which had a certain coefficient of breakdown, which was about 12 millijoules. On paper, which was even lesser, that was about 5 millijoules before I could get that spark of blue light. And one day, those were the days when we were using razor blades to remove sutures from extracapsular procedures. I used a razor blade, and the laser was set at under one millijoule, or just about one millijoule, and I could get optical breakdown. And I realized that using a metal could create a shock wave with very little laser energy input, in this case, a millijoule or less. Jack, what do you mean by optical breakdown? Can you explain that point further? Let me try to explain it in terms of capsulotomy. When ND-YAG or neodymium-YAG laser is focused in a tight cone angle on the posterior capsule, it basically strips off electrons from the posterior capsule, and that sets the stage for optical breakdown and plasma formation. Stripping off the electrons and then its recombination creates, similar to a thunderclap in a in a thunderstorm. So it was creating a bolt of lightning. And so I conceived of a probe that would direct a neodymium YAG laser onto a titanium target. I chose titanium because it had been well known in the eye before. Titanium was well tolerated in the human body in the event that titanium particulate matter were to be left in the eye. We know that that was tolerated well. And uh, so that metal was selected. So in the late 90s, we had devised a probe uh, that we had bench-tested in the laboratory at the Manhattan Ironier on iBank eyes that could disrupt lenses uh, with minimal amount of energy in the eye. We were fascinated by the fact that we could disrupt lenses with under one to two joules of energy. When you think about it, I mean, we've never been able to calibrate exactly the amount of energy necessary in conventional ultrasound, but it was a tremendous amount of energy. Our first laser removal of cataract occurred in uh, 1992. Actually, historically, it occurred in the same operating room that Kelman had done his first ultrasound FACO some uh, 37 years prior. But I bet that you didn't have to wait for the chief of service to be out of the building. No, because I was the chief at that time, Josh, so it was not a problem. We have worked to continue and develop this procedure, initially being able to remove one-plus nuclear cataract soft lenses, and we've taken it to the level of it being able to efficiently remove certainly one and two-plus with great facility and inexperienced hand three-plus, but we still can't match the disruptive power of ultrasound phacomulsification in four-plus nuclear cataracts or firmer. To take us to the point where we are right now, Josh, there is a big movement to uh, remove cataracts through incisions certainly of 1.5 millimeters, with many having a target goal of cataract removal through a 1 millimeter incision. Jack, I, I'd like to talk about the energy levels used in cataract surgery, and I'm specifically making reference to the 2001 ophthalmology paper by John Kenilopoulos dealing with the dotic laser phacolysis system. 
And I'm just wondering, in terms of the uh, jewels uh, in a in a particular case, how I can compare that to to FACO time? I mean, the, the, from my perspective, there are, there are apples apples and oranges. I'm sure that there's some way of making them apples and apples. Uh, no, there really isn't, Josh. But uh, we'll talk about that. Well, go on. Why don't we talk about it now? Well, you see, we can accurately accurately measure the amount of joules or millijoules necessary to remove a cataract with laser energy. And here's how we do that. We know that each pulse of laser delivers 0.8 millijoules. Now, if we deliver 100 pulses, that's 800 millijoules or just shy of one joule. We know exactly the amount of energy. The problem is that when we get to ultrasound, there is no accurate measurement. As a matter of fact, the closest we've come to trying to decide how much energy is necessary to remove cataracts are some early papers in the Journal of Cataract and Refractive Surgery that I think estimate that many hundreds, or rather many thousands of joules of energy, because tremendous heat is produced with ultrasound or conventional ultrasound, are necessary to remove a cataract. Of course, that's all changed now and is changing with the lower frequency ultrasounds and the pulsed ultrasounds and all those technologies that have been advanced to reduce the amount of heat produced during a uh, phacoemulsification cycle. Jack, despite the fact that the driving energy for the laser phacolysis system is laser, um, the disruption of the lens itself is a result of the mechanical shockwave coming off of the metal plate. And and you're absolutely correct, Josh. And and basically uh, what happens is the uh, NDAG laser energy is focused on a metal target. Subsequent plasma formation, which is the explosive element of a uh, lightning bolt, and that is a shockwave. And that shockwave is propagated to the target tissue, namely the nucleus, and disrupts it. When we think of the phacophysics that are involved in ultrasound cataract surgery, we know that there are three kinds of energy coming off of the needle. We know that there is the percussion of the of the of the needle, like a like a jack, jackhammer, and we know that in fact that's that mechanical force, right? That that in fact that there's very little energy transfer coming through from from that. We know that there is an acoustic shockwave coming off, and we know that even though there's more energy involved in the acoustic shockwave than in the the percussive force, that that's still not what the main mechanism is. We know that most of the energy transfer that takes place with FACA takes place as a result of cavitation, and that this cavitation takes place for the most part within the inside of the front of the lumen of the needle. And I'm wondering if with the laser phacolysis system, whether we know that cavitation is the is the main player here, or if one of those previous two forces is the um, the primary motivator in disassembling the the lens nucleus. Well, I think we can accurately say, scientifically say, that it is the percussive force of the shockwave. Actually, we've been able to measure this, and we've been actually able to photograph it with high speed cameras, Schlering cameras that actually uh, can photograph the uh, propagation of these waves from inception at one to two nanoseconds after the laser hits the target to uh, several nanoseconds later. So the short answer, Josh, is it is a percussive force. And how contained is the shockwave? Well, 
can't give you any measurements, but uh, of course, once we get out, once we get out further from the probe tip, the shock tends to spread. So therefore, if we apply the force close to proximal or right on the target tissue, the cataract, it's very focused. And so there is very little spreading or dissemination of the force. And uh, we can tightly focus it on the target tissue. Jack, both bimanual FACO and the laser phacolysis system have as their advantage the ability to take a a cataract out through a 1.5 millimeter wound or or smaller or smaller certainly why do i want a wound that small if i have to open it up uh to to put a put a lens in well we're back to uh the same advantage that we saw 30 or 40 years ago uh, i guess the smaller wound josh and the more closed a system, more closed a system with which we can operate, provides greater stability, greater interoperative control for the surgeon, which translates into greater safety. And with regards to having to open it later on, just like we did with phacoemulsification, we will see the developments of lenses that take advantage of this foreshortened incision, which, by the way, I think is going to be a way station along the way where the real ultimate answer to that is going to be some injectable optically qualified compound. Jack, do do you ever take out any cataracts with extracapsular surgery anymore? Yes, but that becomes a very, very rare event. You know, I would estimate that I do annually between 800 and 900 cataracts a year. And if I do more than uh, three or four planned extra caps or procedures, that's a lot. Jack Doddick, thank you very much. My pleasure, Josh. Jack Doddick is professor and chairman of the Department of Ophthalmology at the New York University School of Medicine and chairman of the Department of Ophthalmology at the Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital. Participate in today's discussion. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those phone numbers can be found on our website at seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.